You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Shimak Matilla, who is using Python, Node, C, and more to build an image processing and optimization API. Shemek, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here with you today. Yeah, very happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Absolutely. Um, my name is Shemek Matilla, and um, I'm the CEO and lead developer at OptiDash. And OptiDash is an image and document processing platform. So we provide our customers with robust APIs for pixel processing. We're talking image resizing, cropping, phase detection, recognition, enhancement adjustments. So it's essentially Photoshop for developers. AI-powered image optimization is also a very important vertical for us. On top of that, we do document classification, data instruction, um, and customer computer vision solutions. Well, so that is a whole lot more than just making thumbnails. <laughs> yeah, it's a slightly more, to be honest. Yeah. So in this project here, uh, do you happen to have a whole team of developers behind you, or are you just the only one coding this project? On payroll, we have three developers, including me, um, doing all the, all the crazy work with precision-driven pixel processing. And we also have around about seven contractors working with us on a freelance basis. And the reason for this is that um, in, in our space or in our industry, access to talent is vastly limited. So if you're looking for, I don't know, a PHP developer, I can probably go down on the street and find somebody within, what, five or 10 minutes. Okay, I'm joking, by the way. But um, mm -hmm. if we're talking about pixel processing um, and shaders and GPU computing, it's it's relatively hard, especially here in Berlin, to, um, to find appropriate people to, to join our team. So that's why we decided to offload that work to a group of freelancers that we work on a on a daily basis. Nice. Yeah, because before the show and listeners out there, I usually send a very short questionnaire out to guests to get a high-level overview of what type of tech stack they have. But in your case, it was like, yeah, we're using C, Lua, Python, Swift, Node, like basically, yes, right? Like every technology ever. So <laughs> I imagine there's like a lot of different components of your stack. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but on the other hand, I I really try to um, limit the, the amount of technologies to the bare minimum. So whenever we have a, a new functionality um, on, on our roadmap, I first start to think, what technologies do we already have in place to attack that particular problem that we have at hand and not to introduce anything anything more unnecessarily. Nice. Now, before we get to breaking down, you know, what you're using each of those languages and technologies for, do you want to maybe set the stage of like what type of traffic you're dealing with? Like, I don't know whatever metric that would make sense for you, like image process or whatever. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so on the very average and boring day, we see around about 20 million API calls. And by API calls, I mean 20 million input images per day. Um, and on busy days, um, we're talking peaks, um, we see around about 50 mil per day. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a big jump. We are we are prepared for this. So as, as you probably know or not, we are running on bare metal on our own infrastructure that we collocate here in Frankfurt, Germany. So we have a lot of spare compute capacity to actually handle those spikes. Right. So you're, well, I don't want to get too ahead of myself with the deployment stuff, but I would imagine like, you're just sitting at like a couple of percent CPU with like a good amount of memory left. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yes. Nice. But before we get there, it might be worth it to break down what we're going to be talking about today. And like, where do all these technologies fit in? Like, for example, you know, when it comes to uh, C, have you written any just custom C code, I guess, to just analyze these images or something else? Actually, C is used in, um, in many places in the, within the OptiDash stack. First of all, we would like to be as close to metal as, as it is possible. And uh, C is, well, pretty fast. Also, all the, all the codecs that we have are written in C. So we want to be as close to that also as possible. So this is the reason for C. We also have majority of the codecs, image codecs that, that we are using. We kind of improved them in a way that nearly all of the codecs that we have are SIMD optimized just to gain additional speed. 
Um, so C is, is a perfect fit for, for the codex, but also speed is one of the most important metrics here at OptiDash. Whenever you want to do pixel processing at scale with, with a certain speed, I would highly recommend um, C4 for that. Okay. Maybe easier to just go maybe from the other side of the spectrum, like your web service themselves, like what language are those written in? So all the customer facing applications are written in Node. Um, so originally I'm a, I'm a JavaScript developer. So whenever I see um, a web service, it's probably it's, it's going to be written, um, written in Node and parts of our applications are actually written in Python. And the reason for this is now Python is not exactly slow, regardless of what people what people say. Whenever we we deal with with certain images, we decompress them, of course, and then load them into Python. And in Python, all the images are represented as NumPy arrays. And NumPy by itself is extremely optimized to the to the absolute maximum. So. Let's take a very basic image operation, which is image cropping. And with Python, you can manipulate with, with arrays. Um, so you can just slice an array to extract a, a portion of the image. And then whenever you want to, for example, I don't know, do some gamma adjustments or contrast um, opacity, you're basically doing a very simple mathematical calculations on the NumPy arrays. Um, it's extremely efficient. It's very fast and also it's Python. So it's a, it's a real pleasure to, to work with. Right. So maybe from like a pipeline perspective, like let's say I were to upload an image, you know, basically making an API call to your service, then the node service picks that up and then it hands it off to your Python service to do the actual like manipulation. It's a bit more complicated than that. Let me try to briefly describe the, the whole life cycle of the request. Um, first, it hits our data center. It hurts our racks. We have two of them. It goes through the top of the rack switches. And then from the switches, it goes to the load balancers. And then we pick the next machine. Obviously, the, um, the balancers are, are powered by um, Nginx. So through load balancers, all the load is um, delivered to the worker machines. And then once we have the image on disk, then we pick it up um, and the first task for us is to actually assess or test the image what exactly are we dealing with and that part is written in c there is a lot of stuff a lot of nasty stuff that can be encoded into images so imagine that i don't know you have a gif an animated gif which is essentially a, a single pixel one by one um, but it has like 10 million frames. Try dealing with that, especially if the client requested an upscaling operation. So from one-on-one, -on -one, you would like to have 10,000 by 10,000 GIF, and now you have to multiply it by 10 million frames. We have several checks and uh, guarding mechanisms in place. So without decompressing the, the entire data, we are able to check, test, and tell what is the type of the, of the image we are dealing with. And once we are sure that, okay, this is a pretty valid image, then we pump it further. Then it hits the Python application um, and then Python deals with pretty much everything. So the decompression, pixel manipulation, and then um, encoding. We are also, parts of our applications are powered by Swift. Um, so we have a vast array of Mac Pros, the second generation, you know, the um, the trash cans, the black trash cans. Um, we have a vast array of those, and parts of our applications are, are written in Swift. That is super interesting, but we have a lot to unwind there for sure. So, when you mentioned just like reading with Python, I guess to see if you know an image is a certain type of image, you're just talking about like just looking at the first couple of bytes of the file or something like that, just to very quickly determine if it's like a JPEG or a GIF or whatever. Um, yes. So we read as much. Um, without decompressing actually the, the data stream, the, the underlying pixels to test if, if this is a valid image. So we are trying to extract the, obviously the, the file type, and then we have, um, how many frames does this, this GIF has the, the width and height, the, the bit depth, chroma subsampling for, for JPEG images, all kinds of crazy metadata that we can get our hands on. Right. Now, for doing all of that parsing and checking things out, is that all code that you've written, or did you use a third-party library for that one? 
Um, no, it's all written in-house, either by me or our contractors or developers that we work with. Right, because, because I'm not like hardcore into image manipulation stuff, but I did recently just screw around a little bit with some Python code to mm -hmm. basically convert a PNG to a JPEG, but control the background color of the JPEG to make sure it's like white or, you know, always legible. And man, the, the code to get that to work, like that was just stack overflowing like a maniac. And it wasn't like a huge amount of code. I think it was like 40 lines, 50 lines, whatever it was. But yeah, that is such a different world than just doing like, oh yeah, I'm going to like wire some stuff in my controller and return an each, you know, TTP response or whatever. Uh, yeah, this is this is true, but I think it also applies to pretty much every industry. So currently we're talking about images, but I'm sure that let's take, for example, I don't know, customer support software. So things like, I don't know, Zendesk. Um, for, for me, that has probably close to zero experience with, with writing such a software, I would be like, yeah, okay, it's super easy. The email comes in, you just need to put it in the queue, inform somebody, you know, ping some agents and, and that's it. So I'm guessing that it's slightly more involved than that. And the same applies to, to image processing um, because, you know, it's not only about resizing or, or cropping images. Your example is actually very good because you're, you wanted to take a, a transparent PNG and convert it into a JPEG, which means that you need to put a, a background beneath it, which means that you need to do an operation which is called alpha compositing. And you actually need to calculate the um, the pixels, the, the transparent or semi-transparent pixels on your color background, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was no joke. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like if I were on a desert island for a million years and no access to the internet, like there's zero percent chance of coming up with that on my own. Uh, no, don't be so hard on yourself. But by the way, when it comes to things like you mentioned before about having like, you know, a one by one GIF with a million frames or whatever, edge cases like that, did you happen to just like figure that stuff out as you went where, you know, someone did that and you're like, oh, yeah, I should probably have a check for that. Or did you kind of like preload a whole bunch of checks that you kind of just figured people might do? I think it's both. Whenever we have different checks in place in, in many of our applications, so whenever something is slow, and by slow in, in our world is um, longer, anything, any operation that takes longer than 50 milliseconds is a, is a good candidate for optimization. So we dump the, the whole request along with um, all the processing parameters to actually replay this. And some of those requests were like, yeah, okay, um, we cut some corners here, let's do a proper job. So that's one thing. And the other one is whenever we come up with a new feature, um, then the first thing, the very first thing that, that I try to figure out is what are the attack vectors through that feature? Unfortunately, we live in the, in the times like that, but um, you really need to think what can go wrong with this particular request. And when it comes to images and image processing, there is a lot of stuff that, that can go wrong. Right. Yeah, I would imagine from a technical level, but also from like a human perspective, like, you know, people could be uploading very questionable images to your platform, I would imagine. Um, yeah, that is true. I myself, I'm more open-minded, to be honest. Our terms of service um, are, are very clear on that. Obviously, we are dealing a lot with the not safe for work content, but uh, we have different policies with uh, with our clients that are using um, such functionalities um, because, well, the, the entire job for, for that particular customers is to weed out not safe for work images, which means that we need to process them in order to know um, what to weed out, right? Mm -hmm. You ever get some like really crazy stuff? I mean, we don't need to get into details, but like stuff that's like beyond and not safe for work, like one whole level, like galaxy above that. Yes, unfortunately, yes. So a couple of months back, we were working with the upcoming um, social media for Spanish speaking people. And I think they will launch in the Q3 or Q4 this year. But one of the requirements was to uh, check for not safe for work. And I'm not only talking about partial nudity here. So in order to come up or train the machine learning model to detect this, I actually had to go through that content. It really put some images in my head that I was really trying to forget. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting that you mentioned machine learning to kind of, you know, be able to automate that. But when it came to building up that model, what machine learning libraries or tools did you even use to get to that point? 
we initially we started uh, with CoreML. This is the the framework of choice when when it comes to the uh, Mac hardware, right? Um, and then we quickly realized that while it is possible to translate or adapt different different machine learning models um, into the core ML format, those models are not as performant as you would like it to see. Um, so we decided to slowly migrate away from, from Mac Pros, and now we are running pretty much everything on AMD hardware. Um, I guess we will get to that um, a bit later. But um, the, the framework of choice is TensorFlow for us. Okay. And by the way, when it came to setting up those Macs and, and running Swift, was there a specific reason why you chose to go down that route? Like, I'm not questioning that. I just don't know anything about that domain. Like, is, does Mac and Swift offer tools and libraries that just make that a lot better of an experience? Um, it's not about Swift. It's about macOS and Apple. Whenever you would like to run any code natively on your Mac, you essentially have two options. Option A is the Objective-C, and the second option is, is Swift. Now, the reason that we really wanted to, to get into or to build the, the whole um, stack based on Mac Pros is that every single Mac Pro, and we are talking about second generation, every single Mac Pro has two graphic cards with 6 GB of VRAM on it. They are called AMD Fire Pro D700. So for relatively low price, I mean, currently the second gen Mac Pro is like, what, probably close to 1,000 euros. And and the spec that you're getting in the return is, is just crazy. I mean, the, the dollar per, per GFLOP is, the, the ratio itself is extremely favorable. I truly believe that pixels belong to graphic cards. Or I did believe like a year ago. Now my, my focus has, has changed a bit into, into SIMD optimized CPU computing. But the reason was um, to use all the embedded software and frameworks that Apple provides for, for Mac or iOS. So we are talking core graphics, core image, image IO, um, accelerate framework. Apple has some very, very bright people working on the imaging software. And they also expose pretty much everything to, to the developers. So you as a developer, you can utilize their software running on their hardware. And especially now with the, with the introduction of Metal, um, which was, what, three years ago, maybe four, the uh, Metal Shader language. It's um, this is this is some very good feat that they pulled off. Nice, yeah. I remember metal. You know, I haven't gotten into it, but I remember definitely in the graphics space uh, something to look into. But now you mentioned though you're kind of transitioning to using AMD CPUs now. Does that mean you're gonna go away from using Swift and just transfer that code to a different language or no? Uh, we already did. Yes, there are tiny bits and pieces still running on, on Mac Pros, uh, but I would say we are close to 90% of, of our migration. So currently we have almost two full racks um, filled with filled with the regular super micro machines doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So we have load balancers, the databases, uh, business intelligence, obviously the, um, the, the raw compute uh, machines, webhooks, storage pods, and mainly we use AMD for, for the compute. Um, the reason for this is also the price per, per gig flop is, is crazy for, for AMD. But also, unlike Intel, AMD offers 256 megs of cache on your CPUs, which means that you can fit multiple images entirely um, into the CPU cache, which vastly speeds up the, the whole process. Right. Now, I'm not hardcore into AMD's hardware, but are you using something like their latest Ryzen, like a Threadripper or something else? Uh, no, we use um, data center grade. It's called Epic. Okay. Do you want to get into like maybe not at super low level details, but like what makes that CPU type a good fit for this type of setup? You can get um, a lot more cores than, than Intel. So obviously a uh, majority of, of our workloads are multi-threaded, uh, which is a huge advantage to us. The second is they are relatively cheaper than Intel. I think that thermal envelope is also a bit favorable. Okay. So maybe now that we can switch gears just a little bit and go back to your web server, the Node one. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to that Node server, do you happen to use a specific web framework like Express or something else, or do you just like serve it directly? Uh, we serve it directly. Um, Express is okay if you like to 
broaden, I don't know, some web application doing something and you don't really need um, real-time processing. Essentially, Express uh, slows you down and slows you down considerably. And because um, most of our node applications are running our internal traffic, we don't really need to expose all kinds of crazy routing, which means that the node applications that we are running are written from scratch in vanilla JavaScript. Okay. But like the public internet, I mean, they're not going to be accessing the node server directly. Like it'll go through your load balancer, et cetera. But does node handle those 20 million API requests per day or no? Yes. Nice. Do you have any specific libraries in your package JSON that really helped you build uh, just the web component of this app? Not really. No. I mean, we use a whole bunch of those. Um, probably the drivers for uh, for our databases or business intelligence. Um, we use Elasticsearch for for that. Now, when it comes to the NPM modules, no modules. I also have like a little philosophy behind this. So whenever I pull a new model, a module into into our application, I actually check the source and see the code quality and what exactly is this thing doing. Now, the reason for this is that it is extremely convenient just to type npm minus e whatever save um, and then boom, you can use it. But on the other hand, no one ever bothers to actually look at the performance side of things or the security. So I try to limit our applications to, to the bare minimum. And if we see a need for, for a module, then Usually I try to attack the, the problem myself and just write vanilla JavaScript that we are in complete control of. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially for a larger setup like yours where, yeah, that's a, that's a serious amount of traffic that you're dealing with. And yeah, I mean, there are definitely security implications, right? It's like someone can have an open source library up on GitHub and be like, hey, by the way, you can NPM install this, but the package on, on NPM is different than what's on the open source repo, right? Yes, of course. Uh, we've seen that happen. I really can't, can't remember where was that, but uh, there was a malicious code in one of the NPM modules. And I think the bad actor, they were trying to attack the um, crypto exchange the other day. Right. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. I can't think of it, but if I come up with it while editing, I'll, I'll drop it into the show notes. Yeah. And by the way, so far we've been talking a little bit about the API server, but do you actually have like a web dashboard that folks can log into, you know, after you've created an account, something like a Stripe dashboard, but for your setup? Yeah, absolutely. It's also written in Node. And that part is actually uh, powered by Express because we don't need anything real time. It's just a web dashboard, sort of a my account type of a thing. Um, you can provision new API keys, introduce your team members, um, track your usage in uh, in, um, in the real time. And we also have a CDN integration. So whenever any customer would like to have their images already available online, they can just flip the switch and, and have it distributed all around the world. So that part is, is written in Node. It's based on Express. And now all the front end that you see when you visit opti-ai, um, this is a completely static um, Jekyll website, and we are hosting this stuff on uh, Google Firebase for free, by the way. Oh, nice. Very happy to see another Jekyll user out there. That's my static site generative choice as well. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Once you once you kind of wrap your head around uh, basic concepts, then you just create new files and, and deploy. And with, with the Firebase, the deployment is, is really a breeze. It's immediately available online, instant cache validation. I really can't recommend this stuff enough. By the way, I'm not affiliated by, with Google in, in any capacity. It just, it just works flawlessly for us. Right. So you say, like, we all know you're basically like their lead salesman right now. <laughs> um, no, not, no, not really. Not really. I mean, we are not paying them any money. Um, it's it's completely free, but I'm very happy with, with Firebase and, um, and the way they, um, they do deployments. Yeah, I'm just joking with you. But it, it is good to see that you are having success using that because it is a really good service for sure. Yeah, 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 it is, it is. Now, by the way, when it comes to that web UI where folks can see like a real-time usage and stuff like that, are you using anything like WebSockets to push those notifications out or no? No, not really. We are not interested with real-time as in this nanosecond, what's what's going on. Whenever you refresh, you just get a fresh data. None of our users actually created like a feature request for, for that type of thing. Okay. And speaking of that, by the way, do you happen to use any services or tooling in place to keep track of 
what you might develop based on, on features. Like, you know, certain sites have almost like a Stack Overflow thing, right? Where people can vote on what they want to see next. No, not really. Um, so OptiDash is mainly B2B. Before any larger customer signs up, we actually go with them and ask them what kind of features do they would like to have enabled, or maybe there is a feature that we are missing. So it's not publicly available, but um, if you guys have any ideas that would make OptiDash better, then just drop me a line and uh, we'll make it happen. Nice. Yeah, I'm sure you're doing a great job now since uh, it is very popular and it's awesome to see. By the way, when it comes to the service, I didn't look at your landing page in too much detail before the call, but it probably is a paid service, right? Like folks need to sign up and pay monthly or annually. Mm -hmm. Yep. When it came to accepting those payments, do you happen to use Stripe or PayPal or something else? Yeah, Stripe. And um, we are also very happy with Stripe. By the way, we use Stripe for free, which is which is super cool for the first year. And we are also participating in all kinds of beta programs with, with Stripe. And yeah, I, I never look back. So for, for, the, for the regular subscriptions, uh, Stripe offers Stripe billing and they do pretty much everything for you. Awesome. And by the way, when it comes to writing all of that payment code, is that also built into the Node app or do you have a different service handling that? Um, no, it's essentially a single application uh, that we call the account or my account. Um, and everything is baked into this. Okay, but that's written in Node as well? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what about like the front end for that? So we didn't really get a chance to dive into, you know, the full tech stack of the back end front end part, but do you have this set up like that dashboard or, you know, accepting payments and accounts and all of that? Is that an API backend with some type of uh, JavaScript front end or is it kind of just using server render templates? Um, no, it, actually it's, uh, it's using Angular. Um, I'm very happy with, with Angular. I never got a chance to to get into the into the React, but Angular works flawlessly, um, at least for us, for for the whole my account section. So initially, we we render like the the bare minimum, and then Angular takes over, and pretty much all the content that you see there is is dynamic. Nice. So, do you happen to use the latest version of Angular then, the stable release? Honestly, I can't tell. I mean, we wrote the we wrote the application, um, and and it works just fine. But um, I'm I'm really not a maniac uh, when it comes to updating the the front end stuff. It just it just works. Um, so I never look back. Right. Think how much fun though you would have going into your front end package.json file and just bumping every package to the latest version. Fun like hell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. De definitely. Definitely. For a for a Saturday afternoon, no, this is this is not going to happen anytime soon. Right, I think Saturday afternoon would turn into that entire month, maybe. Yeah, it could be. But on the other hand, it's not like we have hundreds or or even dozens of of packages there. Um, it's it's really a um, a base uh, minimum to to lift it off the ground. Yeah, that's very true. And by the way, when it comes to bundling up and dealing with those assets on the front end, do you use Webpack or something else? No, not really. I just uh, minify, concatenate, and distribute over over the CDN. By the way, just to switch gears uh, once more here, you are using Lua as well. Do you want to maybe get into a little bit of what you're using that for? Yeah, it's for Nginx mainly. So we have some custom scripts for, for Nginx um, written in Lua. Very cool. Do you happen to use OpenResty or you just enabled Lua by itself? Uh, no, we just enabled it by itself. Nice. Do you want to give, give us some details of like what type of functionality you've added? Yeah, it's mainly uh, related to rate limiting. I wasn't quite happy with how Nginx handles um, rate limiting, especially the all the headers that are exposed to, to end users. So we had to kind of hack our array around it. So Lua is, um, is mainly used in, in that part. Nice. I mean, I don't expect you to know the exact answer to like number of lines of like code you've written in Lua, but do you have like a rough estimate of like, yeah, it was like 200 lines of code or whatever? This is a good question. And um, honestly, I don't have an answer for it right now. Also, I don't really perceive single lines of code as an accurate assessment of, of code quality. Take, for example, Fibonacci sequence, which is a... Um, a fundamental problem to solve, right? And anything longer than what five or eight lines is a um, is a red flag. Sorry to disappoint you, but um, I um, I really can't tell how many lines did we did we put in there. Yeah, it's no problem. The only reason to even ask questions like that is like it just does at least give you some baseline of like how long did it take to actually implement that rate limiting feature? You mm -hmm. know, is it something I can hack hack up in an afternoon, or was this like really grudging through something for like five days? Uh, no, this is something that you can that you can hack in the in the afternoon. Trust me. Right, that's pretty cool though. 
Now, you did mention you are using Nginx as like your actual load balancers, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't have HA proxy or something like that in front of that? No, absolutely. Um, everything that comes um, from, from our speeches hits directly um, load balancers, um, which means the um, Nginx. We use Nginx for SSL termination, obviously. Um, and then we have different upstreams defined with different roles for, well, different applications. Right. And for handling SSL, are you using Let's Encrypt or something else? No, not really. So we have a, a single wildcard certificate that we just renew every two years. And on the front end side, again, Google handles everything. So we don't need to worry about, about that. Right. So this episode is actually pretty funny to me because every time I try to make like maybe an assumption about like, oh, are you using like Let's Encrypt? You're like, no. So I think I'm like 0 for 7 right now. <laughs> uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I tend to use stuff which is, sorry to say this, but it's like boring and predictable and rock solid. I don't know. With Let's Encrypt, I think that you need to renew the certificate like what, every six months, I think? Yeah, every three months. Every three months. Sorry, even better. But then... Obviously, you need to remember to renew, but then you will say, yeah, okay, but we have some watchdogs and it's like renewed automatically and, and stuff like that. But on the other hand, uh, we just buy an SSL cert, which, you know, it's it's wildcard, so it covers pretty much everything and we renew like every two years. So Right. Yeah. Definitely can't go wrong with boring and predictable, especially in something like this. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I just, I can't stress this enough. When I was in uh, my mid-20s, right after the college, um, I would use any hot new software framework or technology I could get my hands on. You don't want to do this. or <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know. Maybe I'm just... Um, more mature. I just tend to work with, with technologies which are boring and unpredictable. Predictable, I mean, um, that the API doesn't change like, you know, every two months. So yeah, C and Python is the way to go. Yeah, definitely can't go wrong there. Now, speaking of maybe boring and predictable, maybe we can talk a little bit more about the rest of your tech stack in terms of you know, what are you using for your primary database? And do you happen to use things like Redis or no? Yeah, definitely. So we use Mongo for the primary database. This is obviously in the in the replica setup. So we have three nodes um, running, running Mongo. Then we have three nodes with, with Redis. And then we have three nodes with Elasticsearch for the very basic business intelligence. So we log every single request that comes to OptiDash for, I think it's 60 days. And that allows us to rapidly mine for very interesting data. So I can say, okay, give me all the JPEG files processed um, within the last 14 days, over 200 kilobyte in size using 440 chroma subsampling with more than 1000 colors. Um, and within a split second, I have all the metrics, averages, medians, and also whenever we um, roll out a, a new feature or we update um, something within the existing functionalities, we can rapidly see the, the impact that it has when you have the historical data. Well, so basically like you're living the dream. So you have a really awesome business analytics setup, but you also have the traffic to actually make that worthwhile, right? Because you can get whatever, like 100 million requests in a couple of days. So that's, that's a big sample size. Yeah, that's true. So in order to test stuff, um, I think you need to have both. Meaning you need to have um, a solid technology to actually handle the load um, and then rapidly query. But on the other hand, the, the sample size plays a, um, a crucial role in here. Now, on the topic of that, do you want to maybe get into some examples of where you looked at some of that data and then determine like, oh, maybe we can improve like this specific function or maybe we should add that feature? Yeah, so one of the most important metric that we have on our on our boards is milliseconds per request. And as I um, hinted before, um, anything which takes longer than 50 milliseconds um, is a is a very good candidate for for optimization. I'm really into speed because the the faster it gets, which means that um, the less compute power you actually need to, to handle the load. So instead of actually throwing money in the problem, which means, oh my God, something is slow. So let's buy, I don't know, new machines or better CPUs, more RAM. We actually start with, with the code itself um, and figure out ways to do stuff more efficient than, than it is right now. Right. And on the topic of that, like some of that C code that you've written, did that start off as Python or node code? And then you just were like, no, nah, it's just not fast enough. Let me just drop down to C. Um, no, actually C is not my part. 
<laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. So we have freelancers um, dealing with with C, and me myself, I'm dealing with um, Python, Swift, uh, Node, and then we have Damien, my um, very good friend, who is dealing with data centers, working deployments, essentially all the all the DevOps stuff. Nice. And by the way, like I don't want to spend too much time on this part, but when it comes to like finding a freelance C developer, like what's that experience like? Luckily, I'm very well connected, to be honest. Um, so we have people who've been um, working together for the past couple of years. So I never actually had to actively recruit and and look for solid C developers. And also, whenever we need to fill a position, I usually look within within my network. Nice. Yeah, that's what I tend to do as well. Uh, network is always good to have. Uh, going back to what you said before in terms of like tech stack and having Elasticsearch and Mongo and stuff, you did mention you are using Redis. Do you want to give us an, an example of what you're using that for? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have Redis for rate limiting. Obviously, we need to we need to keep the session information when you log into to OptiDash for whatever reason. Webhook delivery. Um, this is a, a very important topic. Uh, we have different queues, and then um, we also use Redis um, as a sort of a glue for a couple of microservices that, that we have. Okay. When it comes to sending out those webhooks, is that also controlled by the same Node API server or something else? Uh, no, this is a, um, it's a completely different application. So the, the API by itself, it actually pushes all the webhooks um, and, and webhook information, the, the payload um, onto the queue. And then we have different applications also written in Node living on the separate machines that just pick up from the queue and then and then deliver those webhooks. Right. So for those workers, the node ones, do you use a specific library to deal with all that or is that all in-house? Uh, no, actually that part is not in-house. Um, the library that we are using for um, for the queue management, it's called Bull, B-U-L-L. Um, and it's pretty solid, to be honest. Yeah, I've heard about that one before. I haven't used it firsthand, but like that is the go-to library for background tasks in Node, right? Um, yeah, it used to be Q, as in a K-U-E, uh, written by TJ Holowicek. The legend? Uh, the legend. Now he is more into into Go and uh, photography, um, from what I know. But um, TJ had, uh, we never actually met, um, but he had a, a profound impact on, um, on my career and um, the way I, I look at the Node and, and JavaScript. I remember actually studying his code. And um, yeah, solid stuff, really. Yeah, it's funny. So I don't want to spend a lot of time going over like history of myself, but I did play around with Node back in like the 0.4 days. And I remember TJ was just all over, like every popular library you can ever think of using, like he pretty much wrote it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean- Super prolific and like really good docs, really good code. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so um, you can still find his code, uh, for example, in, in Express because he probably wrote like 90% of it or leaving Node to, to go. And now it's, uh, well, different people maintaining the, the framework. His core code is, um, is still there. So if you are into JavaScript and would like to learn something new or different approach, then um, TJ's code is definitely a, um, a place to go. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, since we're talking about Node here and you have that account application, do you want to go over uh, what transactional email service you use to send emails out, like forgot password or whatever? Um, yeah, the solid and boring. It's called Mailgun, as you might expect. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, again, it just works. Um, you just plug it in. Um, we use the, um, because of the um, European or GDPR regulations, uh, we use the data center that they offer in, I think it's in Amsterdam. Anyway, the um, the European one. And it just works. Nice. And by the way, actually, that's really a good point that you brought up about GDPR. Do you want to go into maybe some details of what you're doing to make sure uh, the data that people save on your servers is safe and they can get rid of it like on demand or at least obtain that information? Now, whenever we process an image um, or any request, um, the the image or the, the binary data itself provided by our customers, it only lives on our machines for precisely one hour and then it's automatically removed. So whenever you whenever you process images with OptiDash, after the processing is over, in the JSON response, you get a unique URL to the output image. It's for you to download it back and you have precisely one hour 
after that, those those images are, are automatically removed. Very cool. Yeah, that's awesome that you brought that up because I was also thinking in the back of my head, like, you know, what type of storage are you dealing with, dealing with that many images? But now I know they just expire after an hour. Yeah, well, obviously, um, when you have 20 million images per day, you need to have some storage pods to accept and, and process this stuff. For that, we actually use Gluster, GlusterFS. And um, again, it's um, it's pretty solid. Um, they have those concept of bricks. You just mount those and uh, that's about it. Nice. And so if you're dealing with something like 20 million API requests per day and every single one of those requests are an image, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is every single one an image or no? Uh, majority. So with OptiDash, you have two options. Um, you can either upload the regular binary data, the image itself, or you can um, feed the API with um, just plain JSON. And within the JSON, you specify a URL to the external resource. And we will just fetch that URL process with whatever parameters you you want it to have to be processed um, and, and give you a JSON back. Okay. Because yeah, where I was going with that one was like, you know, how much disk space do you happen to use on a per hour basis, like before they get purged? Like on average? Um, I can't tell you, to be honest. <laughs> Not because I, I can't tell you because of security reasons, but uh, I really can't remember. That's okay. So maybe now we can transition into like what your hosting setup is like, because you mentioned you do have your own data center, your own servers on a rack there. Do you want to first maybe go over what the reasoning was to use that versus going over to something like AWS or GCP or another cloud provider? Yeah, absolutely. There is this um, rolling discussion. It's a... Um, metal versus cloud or on-prem versus cloud or your own infrastructure versus cloud. And I really can't stress this enough. The current setup that we have, it's extremely efficient and it works flawlessly for us. But I do understand that it might not be for everyone. The amount of compute that that we have um, in those racks is just crazy. And if we were to run pretty much the same spec on any cloud provider, uh, we would be paying tens of thousands of euros every single month. Obviously, it comes with a with a cost and um, and trade off because a it was a, um, a substantial investment upfront to actually fill those racks with with different machines um, and networking hardware. But on the other hand, you need to over-provision. Um, it's not like we can scale within a couple of seconds. So we have to over-provision. And also, well, we need to maintain, uh, monitor, deploy, test um, everything ourselves. Yeah, because you did mention one of your employees or contract workers, they're dedicated just for apps, right? Yes. Okay. And, and by the way, did you start off with this dedicated hardware from day one? Or did you just go like cloud to dedicated after? Uh, no, it was a um, our own dedicated bare metal um, from from day one, um, and uh, frankly, I really like to be involved in all data center operations. Some people say that well, data centers are scary, lone, and uh, depressing places. I can relate to that, to be honest. Um, but on the other hand, I really like spending my time there because I really like to be reminded that what my mom calls the internet or you know, fellow developers call the cloud, it's actually endless stacks and rows of machines, cables, networking, hardware, and also I see the amount of engineering that goes into actually building this stuff that we all use every single day. Yeah, and don't forget uh, loud continuous noise. Uh, well, you have earplugs, so that, that helps. But um, we build data centers uh, to be perfect habitats for machines and, uh, and not humans. And with the very typical setup, meaning the hot aisle and, and cold aisle, when you're doing something um, in front of your rack, you have probably like 50 degrees Celsius blowing directly in your face. Um, and if you need to do something in the back, that's probably like 10 degrees. One of my friends who has to visit the data center uh, frequently, he always comes back ill with running nose. And uh, yeah. Hmm. So when it comes to this data center, then this is all completely hosted by you, right? Like literally it's your own building, your own power, your own racks, everything. 
no, I mean, this is the, the regular um, collocation. We have two racks uh, within the, the entire um, data center. The power is obviously provided by, by the data center and the same for uplinks. Um, I decided from the very beginning that we do not want to maintain the BGP session. That's something that um, we have directly from, from our data center. So feel free to say no if you don't want to answer this question, but uh, which colo do you use? Like what service? Colo is called First Colo. It's uh, pretty much in the in the city center of, of Frankfurt. Um, it's a um, relatively small company, part of a um, bigger company, which is called Diva E. Now, do you want to go into maybe some details of like what types of hardware you have in all of your racks? You don't need to go like, you know, every single one with every individual spec, but like overall, like how much memory and CPU do you have? Yeah, absolutely. So the the regular um, worker machines um, that do all the all the heavy lifting, um, pixel processing and um, and compression, um, those are based, um, as I said, on the on the AMD chips. And the rest of the stuff, um, which is not that CPU intensive, um, it's the regular Intel Xeon processors. I think the minimum amount of RAM that we have is like 32 gigs and all the worker machines have uh, 256. Oh, wow. That is a lot of memory. But it's something that's continuously used, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it really pays off. For sure. And by the way, speaking of like paying off, and you don't need to get into like exact numbers of like how much you paid for those racks and stuff like that. But uh you know, you did mention if you were to use something like a hosted provider, you'd be paying like tens of thousands of dollars per month. Did you do any calculations to factor like at what point did it make sense to buy your own hardware because it like paid for itself after after like six months or a year or something like that? Not really. I mean, it was a, um, a leap of faith because uh, we invested all the money um, and then... While we had um, a few customers providing us with with a stable revenue stream, we didn't actually know at the time um, what the future holds for us. Um, obviously, we didn't fill the um, the whole two racks um, fully um, with with the hardware, so we did that gradually. Obviously, the the load balancers, um, just a couple of um, compute machines, um, something for the databases, and then we kept adding, adding, adding. Um, once we sign uh, new customers. Nice. And, and by the way, if you happen to get something like a hardware fair, like one of your discs die or something like that, do they take care of that, or do you have to send your buddy there to go and swap it out? Uh, no, obviously not. Um, we have uh, pretty solid remote hands, um, and we have some of the equipment, um, spare parts, exactly like like discs, um, RAM, and uh, CPUs, PSUs lying down in the in the rack. So all it takes really is to is to log in, um, tell them what machine, uh, what rack, and they'll just do everything for you. Nice. And, and on the topic of that, like, have you ever had to deal with uh, hardware failures yet? Yeah. I mean, um, disks fail, the PSUs fail, everything fails. So usually um, when you're running um, your own hardware in the, in the data center, um, I think that you should plan for around about three years and then replace pretty much everything. Right. Do you want to give, or if you happen to have an estimate of like how many drives do you think died over the last year? Um, actually, not that much. I think like two tops. But then um, I decided to replace pretty much everything um, with, with the new drives uh, because uh, we got a, um, a pretty good deal on the um, SSD drives. Obviously, um, we are using the PCI Express-based um, SSDs for enhanced performance, but um, but still, um, we just replace whenever a disk fails in, uh, in one machine, I really like to replace pretty much everything because, well, I know that the, the second one, um, third or fourth, is going to die pretty much soon. Right. And, and by the way, on the topic of disks, I don't think we went over like how much storage capacity you happen to have. Actually, not that much. So all the worker machines, I think they have 256 gigs because Again, um, it only takes a fraction of a second to, to process the image and then it's offloaded to the, to the storage pods. So we are not actively um, occupying the, the disk. Right. What about on the database side of things when it comes to storage like for Elasticsearch or your MongoDB? Mm -hmm. What type of storage do you have there? Yeah, it's the, it's the regular Mongo uh, where we keep all our accounts, users, um, and um, all the requests are, again, stored in the, in the Elasticsearch for, for further processing and data mining. Right. Is that like on the order of like tens of gigs or maybe like hundreds of gigs for all that information or less? Honestly, I don't know. 
I can follow up on this. Um, I just need to log into um, Kibana and uh, and see where we at. Right. Yeah, I guess it's not super important in the end. Like it's enough to where everything is continuing to work. Yeah, definitely. And um, all those indexes are automatically removed after sixty days. That that really helps. Yeah, for sure. And and by the way, when it came to setting up all of these services that are you know doing different things like your database and the workers, do you happen to use the same Linux distro in all of them? Yes, definitely. Everything is managed by Puppet. So we have a base config for pretty much every single machine um, and then per role configs um, with, with highly specialized software for them. Nice. So which distro did you go with in the end? Um, we usually use um, the regular Ubuntu, the latest LTS. Okay. And when it came to going with Puppet, did you happen to do like a breakdown of comparing Puppet versus Ansible versus Chef and versus everything else? And like, what led you to use that one? I think it was uh, Damien's decision, my, my friend who deals with all the DevOps tasks. He does it for a living 24-7. So when he says, we need Puppet for this, and I'm like, hey, okay, man, let's just go with Puppet. Um, and uh, it works flawlessly again. Right. Now, or you may have answered this in a different way before, but like, do you happen to run any VMs on those servers or is it like straight bare metal for all of them? It's straight bare metal. And exactly how many servers do you manage with Puppet, if you had to say? I think it's close to 50 right now. Oh, wow. So I haven't used Puppet firsthand. Typically, I happen to use Ansible and Ansible is infamously pretty slow when it comes to being able to run operations against all of your servers. Do you know like how long it takes to do a run on a, on a typical server? Like if you have to set a new one up? It depends if we are talking only about the, the puppets itself or are we talking about the entire deployment, um, including the US and all the all the software. Provisioning of the server. Like let's say you put a new server in the rack and it's like, okay, this is going to be a worker server. Let's run puppet and we're off. 10 minutes, maybe. Okay, that's really not too bad at all. It's not too bad, but uh, you know, you can have a um, a new machine um, or at least a virtual machine in the cloud within seconds. This is a uh, this is a trade off. Yeah. Well, as long as you're over provisioned and you sort of know what your traffic is, it's you have a good idea of where you're at basically at all times, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. We also have a good idea where we want to be um, in the in the second half of the year and and next year. So uh, there is definitely more hardware coming in as we sign uh, more customers. Nice. Now, going back to your maybe deploy process a bit, do you want to walk us through what it is like for a developer to add some new functionality to one of the services and then make its way all the way to it's like live on the site or you know whatever the service happens to be? Maybe you can give examples for a couple different types of services that you have. Yeah, definitely. Um, when it comes to front-end, you just push to push to master and that's about it. Whatever lands in, in, in the master, um, it's immediately picked up by, by Firebase and it's it's ready live within seconds. Now the backend deployments are a bit more complicated because we have all the tests running as a pre-commit hooks. You cannot push without all the tests being green. Um, and then we use Capistrano for deployment. So it's not set up or triggered by um, any CI CD. It's, um, it's essentially triggered by, by the developer. Once all the tests are green, um, you just start Capistrano and it's seeded to every single machine. Nice. Now, did your DevOps partner, Damien, I think was his name, mm -hmm. did he set things up to where any developer can deploy any service that they're working on fairly easily, like just run a Capistrano command and you're basically done? Actually, deployments are uh, pretty limited. Um, I think three or four people within the whole organization um, can deploy to production. I know that this might be a problem for some of the new developers that we are working with. On the other hand, um, it's not like we need to deploy the code like, you know, 10 times a day to make anyone uncomfortable with this. Yeah, I think that's a pretty common thing too. Like even with my own freelance work, there are some clients where I just don't have deploy access, but all I do is commit the code. And then, you know, it gets up there when it gets up there, when they're ready to actually make their release. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can still test your code locally. Um, we have a um, the, the regular staging environment where you can test all the pre-production features, but whatever lands in, in production um, is, is later on decided by, by us. Right. Now, when it comes to version control, do you have something like GitLab self-hosted on your infrastructure or something else? Uh, no, we actually use the, the regular um, GitHub organization. Oh, nice. Do you have things hooked up for GitHub Actions to run some tests in CI or no? Uh, no, not really. It's a um, pretty pretty burr setup when it comes to when it comes to Git. 
right? So it's, you're basically just using it to version control your code and just keep it up there in the cloud somewhere, right? Yeah, exactly. There are some uh, wikis, obviously, guides, um, readmes for, for deployment um, and, and stuff like that. Okay. And what about when it comes to things like uh, secrets, you know, API keys for Stripe and stuff like that? Where do you store those and how do they make their way onto the server? Um, actually, this is the um, um, one of the services that we use from, from AWS. Um, so we keep all the secrets there um, and they are just injected into the all the machines as a environment variables. Okay, that's pretty nice because then in dev, you can just put like an ENV file loaded in and you're getting the same type of setup, right? Precisely, yes. Mm -hmm. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about planning for disasters or unexpected events, which it sounds like if you're running your own data center, you have to be really on the ball when it comes to being able to swap hardware out. We didn't get a chance to talk about this one before though, but like when you had those two hard drives die out, or whatever hardware failed. Like, what is the turnaround time to actually get a new one in there and go from like, hey, this is broken to, yeah, you're like, we're back in business? From experience, um, at least in our data center, it's around about 30 minutes um, to swap a drive. So that's, I would say it's pretty solid. But when it comes to the um, all the disaster recovery and, uh, and prevention, every single role that we have in, in our setup um, is at least tripled, which means that all the databases, business intelligence, um, load balancers. We have three physical machines um, doing pretty much the same. So that's one thing. And the data center itself is very well prepared. Um, obviously, there are multiple power lines um, and they have access to around about 100 carriers to, to keep us online. And then um, there are multiple disks within the um, every single machine that, that we deploy. Two PSUs per machine, two LAN cards, obviously, um, everything connected to at least two Juniper switches top of the rack. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see that because like a 30 minute turnaround time for a hardware failure seems awesome. Like to be able to recover from that. It's almost like a weird false sense of security on the cloud where, you know, if something goes wrong and I don't know, S3 happens to go down, like it's very unlikely. But when it does, like maybe it goes down for half the day, like you have no control over when it's coming back. Yeah, absolutely. But um, on the other hand, the scale at which S3 operates, um, it adds a whole new dimension to the to the complexity of, of their operations. When S3 goes down, then um, it's probably something more than just a, a broken disk. I know that the last time they went down, I think it was a misconfig from one of the one of their devs. Right. Interesting to see that those problems still happen, even at like one of the most important scales you can operate at. Yeah, I mean. Whatever can happen will happen sooner or later. Um, it's just a matter of being prepared to deal with the situation um, as fast as possible. Yeah, for sure. Now, on the topic of that, do you happen to have any more stories that you want to share around, you know, maybe something being misconfigured or something broken in an unexpected way? Not really. Sorry <laughs> to um, to disappoint you, but um, it's just um, a solid service. It works 24-7 tirelessly. Nice. So maybe now uh, we can talk a little bit more about disaster recovery in terms of uh, databases. So, you know, you do mention you have quite a bit of redundancy in terms of disks and stuff like that. And what did you say? You had three Mongo servers running? Yeah, right. Um, three independent um, Mongo nodes uh, running in the, in the replica setup. Do you find yourself doing uh, interesting things in production just to test like the resiliency of your setup? Like, well, like, what would happen if I were to just reboot this database server or anything like that? I mean, I don't really need to, I don't really need to test. I know that pretty much nothing will happen. So it's often when we go to the, to the data center, all I can, all I can do is basically plug that machine off uh, without notifying anybody. I know that uh, nothing will happen. Nice. And by the way, do you have any types of like alarms or alerts set up to where, you know, if a box is starting to get out of control, like 90% memory usage for 10 minutes or whatever, do you get notified of things like that or no? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we use two services for this. The first one is server density, very solid service. You just install those those agents on all your machines um, and, and done deal. So they provide a very basic monitoring for all our services, including Nginx and plugins to pretty much every software that, that we use in production. And on top of that, we use internally Influx and, and Telegraph to, to have additional redundancy for, for monitoring and alerting. Whenever anything is, is not green, uh, my phone will get flooded with all kinds of messages and, and alerts. So do you happen to recall like the last time you just got paged or you know messaged a few times in a row because something happened? Um, yeah, it's usually because of the disks. 
Um, it's not like you know the the entire API is down, but uh, we do know when certain parts of the of the infrastructure are not behaving as as they should. Right. I wonder what is the cause of that. Like, what would make the disks just be the ones acting up all the time? This is a good question, and I think that you should do a podcast with what are they called? Backblaze. Thank you. Yes, they know probably everything about disks. Yeah, that's a very good idea. So by the way, on the topic of uh, disaster steal or unexpected events or malicious users and things of that nature, you know, you did mention rate limiting a couple of times. Did you find yourself getting into a situation like before you had that rate limiting in place where folks trying to take advantage of your service? No, not really. I don't think that anyone actually hit that limit because um, the limits are set pretty high and also um, they are set individually per customer. But we had rate limiting from, from the very beginning like to think that uh, there are not that much uh, malicious actors out there, but you can just run a script and something goes wrong in there and you can just flood our API with with the requests, especially if we are dealing with asynchronous programming where you're not exactly waiting for any response, then you can just flood us with thousands of, of images per minute. It's also to protect ourselves and um, and the and the rest of the... Um, our customer base and to ensure an equitable distribution of, of server resources. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And, and by the way, you know, on the topic of something like a DDoS attack, do you have uh, anything sitting in front of your servers, like outside of your infrastructure to help you get some protection or no? Actually, yes. So the DDoS protection is, um, A, we use Cloudflare for this. And the, the second um, protection is offered uh, directly by our data center. If for whatever reason, um, the DDoS actually gets past Cloudflare, then it will hit the, um, the the data center protection. Very cool. Now, is that DDoS protection at the data center level, is that just built into what you pay per month or was that something you had to pay extra for? Um, no, this is a um, this is a premium service that uh, we pay monthly. Okay. Would you be open to saying how much that is for that? Or is that kind of just like contractual stuff? You can't discuss that? I would prefer not to. But on the other hand, I think it's close to 10% of the of the overall data center costs. Okay. Yeah, that's a fair amount. Like in terms of like, it gives a good idea of what it costs to get that. Because I feel like that percentage scale is pretty common even for a lot of cloud providers. You know, it's like we'll offer automated backups, but it's going to be like an extra 5% of whatever your monthly is. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Right. And by the way, speaking of payments and monthly setups here, what type of payment setup do you have for your own customers? Is it per month a flat rate or is it based on uh, usage? This is a very good question. And it's a, uh, a completely custom negotiated type of a thing with, with our customers. We tend to sit down with, with any customer um, and well, first um, we need to ask what kind of services do they really need and how we will approach the, the, the problem um, and the provisioning of, of those services. Some of our customers are very happy with the regular billing that you see on Optidash AI, but majority of them, they have sort of a flat fee up to a certain volume and then they just pay for overages. Okay. Yeah, because you did mention, you know, majority of your customers are B2B. So I would imagine, and again, you don't need to get into details because it would leak some information, I bet. But a lot of these businesses that are customers of yours probably offer their own business that they offer to end customers, right? Exactly. We have some of our customers actually white labeling all this solution. So they are either consuming um, our API behind the scenes or we offer them a completely on-premise deployments. Um, then they just get a Docker images with all our software um, and they just run on-prem. Ah, very cool. Good idea of bringing up Docker, by the way, because I didn't get a chance to ask this one, but do you happen to use Docker in any of your, any of your stuff, like either in dev or prod? Yes, I use me myself. Um, I use Docker extensively on, on my machine. And uh, finally, I can actually use it on M1. But in, in production, actually, there are bits, uh, tiny bits and pieces that, uh, that are running um, inside containers. Uh, whether we want to test something out or whether something is very detached from, um, from the core business. So it's like a, I don't know, like a site service that does something useful but um, it's not part of, of our core offering. Okay, cool. So maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the best tips and lessons learned that you've obtained from building and deploying this app. Do you want to give us uh, some of your best ones? 
Yeah, absolutely. The the first one is I quickly touched upon during um, our call is you have to over provision like crazy and uh, monitoring and alerting is actually something that allows you to sleep at night. That's that's one thing. And um, the other thing is a good advice for anyone actually listening to, to, to this podcast that you should never try to replicate a setup that you heard that it's awesome and it works um, for some company because it works for that company and they are happy with it. You should always go with the setup technologies and programming languages that you are most comfortable with. Right. So basically what you're saying is I should not probably build my to-do list in C and host it on 50 servers in a data center. Probably not. I think that uh, this is not the best the best way forward. Yeah, it, it sounds like you found the perfect solution for your specific application. Yes, exactly. And uh, really, I can't stress this enough. People tend to think that... Um, Cloud is is the is the only way to go, or or the other way around. That uh, no, I will I will just do bare metal and and I'm happy. Really, whatever rocks your boat and whatever fits perfectly within your application, the the product itself or the or the problem that you are trying to solve. Right. And by the way, it sounds like you found such a great solution too. With like the disk space kind of goes away since you purge it out so quickly in terms of like the images. But like if you were to grow, let's say, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, uh, do you still see yourself using your custom data center solution? You'll just add more servers into the mix? This is a very good question. And I'm kind of on defense right now. It really works flawlessly for us as of today. But um, probably there will be some time in the in the very near future to actually revise, go back to the to the drawing board, and and see where we at with this. Something tells me that we would still stay with with bare metal, but um, I don't really know what the what the future holds for us. Right. I think that's like a wonderful answer because it really is a testament to, you know, using something that works well for right now, right? It's because the scaly rat right now works great for the data center, but who knows what it's going to be if you 100x your traffic, like maybe you go to the cloud, maybe you still use a data center, like you, you can't determine it until it actually happens. Yes, precisely. This is this is exactly what, what I was trying to say. Cool. So Sumek, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you very much. Before we wrap this up though, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, definitely. Probably you will uh, you will update the the podcast, um, but uh, you can just go to opti-ai. There is um, opti-ai handle on um, on GitHub, and um, on opti-ai you will also find um, our blog, and we frequently post interesting stuff when it comes to technology, pixel processing, uh, image manipulation, and and stuff like that. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop all of those links into the show notes and, and probably personally read up on some of those blog posts about image manipulation because it feels like I, I need to brush up on some stuff. <laughs> That's just wonderful. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.